0: Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2015. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org/podcasts. He's saying, "Look, you want to hear the voice of God? You want to know something about the character?" Uh, of your Heavenly Father, look at His Son. He is the express, exact imprint of God's nature, and when He speaks and what He has done and everything that He has accomplished, uh, that's the consummate revelation of God's will
1: for mankind. Hello, I'm Nancy Guthrie, and welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. An audio series for people who are looking for much more than just a little inspirational thought for the day when we go to the Bible. We are people who find ourselves leading discussions about the Bible, teaching Sunday school or Bible studies. We're people who want to be equipped to rightly, effectively, and creatively teach through books of the Bible. And today I'm sitting with Sam Storms. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you, Sam, for talking with me today.
0: It's good to be with you. Looking forward to it.
1: Now, you've spent 39 years in ministry as a pastor, professor, and author, serving in Churches, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, the heartland. Yes. I'm a Kansas City girl. Oh, I. Yeah. I went was to there for
0: 11 years. Yeah.
1: Went to school in Arkansas, so we both come from the heart of the country. You, you though, also taught as an associate professor of theology at Wheaton College. Yes. For many years. Mm-hmm. Written 22 books mm-hmm. and founded Enjoying God's Ministries, which when people go to your website, they find a wealth of resources and writing right there at the site
0: uh yes they do I've, I've tried to put everything i've ever written uh, or thought on that website available free wow for everything to, you've yeah. written or <laughs> well, thought tells you how small my mind is
1: <laughs> when you go to your website i find this interesting it's uh, it, you really put yourself out if anybody and everybody does go to a website to go what's this person all about yeah And I think it's interesting. You have there on your website, I am an amillennial, Calvinistic, charismatic, credo-baptistic, complementarian Christian hedonist.
0: That covers all of the (laughs) bases, doesn't it? (laughs) It probably confuses more than it helps.
1: I'm sure there are some people go, I don't even know what some of those things are. Uh, But maybe that helps them in that. It it has a kind of a rhythm
0: to it, doesn't it? (laughs) It's
1: it's clear. (laughs) Let's just say that. Uh, And a
0: little controversial. (laughs) Yeah,
1: perhaps so. Well, in 2008 you became the lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And when I went on your church's website, I was excited to see that for the past year you've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. Yes. With a title Jesus is better.
0: Absolutely. It has been an absolutely wonderful experience. Um, we're about 35 weeks into the book and probably at 35 least, weeks. Yeah. And we probably have about 10 to 12 weeks to go.
1: So many of the books as we uh, approach Hebrews are letters mm-hmm. written to churches. And in a sense, this was probably written down as a letter. And yet Hebrews is more like a sermon, isn't it? And, and what difference does that make as we prepare to teach it or does it?
0: the last paragraph of the book chapter 13 verse 22 our author calls it a word of exhortation so it is really an extended exhortation um it's not um it's not necessarily a letter or an epistle in the way that we would typically understand it our author has a very clear focus because the people to whom he's writing are facing a very real and clear danger
1: that makes a big difference, this book, to understand who it's written to right. and the situation they're in. We simply can't understand the book if we go to it and try to immediately make it about us, mm-hmm. which we can tend to do with the Bible. So what do we need to understand about who these people are, that whoever this writer is, who the situation that they're in that he's addressing? Sure.
0: As far as the writer, um, I, I only, I'm fairly certain it wasn't Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. As to who it was, I have no idea. Uh, the people, it's, it, it likely was written to uh, the church at Rome, uh, although there's a lot of dispute about that. But the key is in understanding the fact that these were people who had largely come out of Old Testament Judaism and had heard the gospel and had at least made a profession of faith in Christ— And yet, because of an increase in persecution and pressure, we read about this, for example, in chapter 10. He talks about uh, some of whom had uh, been arrested, some of whom had suffered great reproach, some of whom had had their property stolen, confiscated. Um, And because of this pressure, they were saying to themselves, you know, it might be safer, more comfortable if we were to kind of just slide back under the umbrella of Judaism and enjoy that legal protection. And um, uh, Jesus is, uh, is intriguing, he's appealing, but um, there's something that is comforting and familiar and reassuring and safe in our former way of living uh, in Judaism. So there was this temptation on their part to revert back to the old covenant and to the to the rituals the practices the beliefs uh, that we typically associate with old testament judaism.
1: I think in this book we almost have to try to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit mm-hmm. to grasp the the tug and the emotion and the pleading of mm-hmm. the author. I mean to think about what it would have been like for your whole life to have been about going to the temple and offering animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And all of your extended relatives, your whole life has been about that to now transition. No, I, I, we don't need to go make animal sacrifices anymore. We have this savior. Yes, he was he was uh, executed in the most um, horrific way. This is the savior we're now going to really? follow. And we're actually going to follow him so boldly that we're going to be willing to lose all of our property and you know, our businesses go under and our our families be separated and torn apart, we're, we're that committed to this. I mean, that kind of, that would be challenging.
0: Yes. it's important for, for people to remember that, Life under the Old Testament Mosaic system was a very concrete, tangible, physical experience. Yes. As you said, they could see the tabernacle. They could go to the temple. Um, they could carry a sacrifice in. They were very keenly aware of the shedding of blood. There were sights. There were smells. Uh, the incense of, of the Levitical system. Uh, everything was very tangible. It was very concrete, almost physical in nature. And then to be told, as we are repeatedly in Hebrews, that all of this was, in a sense, typological or a foreshadowing of something infinitely superior, something far more substantive that we can't see, that we can't smell, that we can't taste or touch or hear this person of Jesus who isn't even physically present in our midst. And that was a challenge for those people. Um, and that's what our author sets himself to do, is to say, look... Let me set before you why Jesus and what he brings is infinitely better than anything and everything that you've experienced under the old
1: covenant. So Jesus is better. That almost provides is the source of our outline. If sure. we're going to figure out how we're going to divide up, I mean, just very briefly, what are the things that the author of Hebrews is going to go through and convince us that Jesus is better?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, people can do a word study. I think that's a, I think that's almost one of the first things you should do. You should read through a couple of different. Um, um, translations Mm -hmm. of the book of hebrews especially if you if you don't know greek that's okay you don't need to just work with the english text and take note of how many times the word better is used in hebrews and what you discover is right from the start the revelation that god has made in his son is better than that which came through the old testament prophets not because what they received was wrong it was just incomplete Uh, jesus is better than the angels chapter one um the salvation he provides is is complete uh, uh as over against that in the old covenant which was a looking forward to to what was to come Jesus is better than Moses Jesus is better than Joshua we read in chapter 4 um Jesus is better than he, the covenant that he established is better than that of the old it's enacted on better promises uh, he is a better high priest his sacrifice is better than that which was offered in the old testament we see that in chapters 9 and 10 so everything in the book of hebrews is designed to hold up christ and say you have in him and what he has accomplished for you something infinitely far more superior than whatever the old covenant could have provided so so that is really the the progression of argument it's not a It's not an argument like we find in Romans that's very logical Mm -hmm. and builds point upon point. But it is just one cycle after another of these comparisons in which Jesus is held forth as bringing to us something that is infinitely superior to all that has come before. Everything is now consummated in him.
1: As you say that, I just feel it rising up within me. The, The response to Jesus is better. He's better. He's better. If this doesn't lead us to worship, right, yeah. um, and if it doesn't lead us as teachers to lead our people in worship, I, I think that presents one of our challenges. Is for many teachers, I think, is we're surrounded with a group of people who come in, and they're looking for uh, oftentimes a quick. Um, Something very, what they would say, practical, right? I want to take away a practical application. I've got this problem, and, um, you know, I'm looking for some help to make me a better person, a better Christian, whatever it is. And it seems to me that this book of Hebrews, uh, what it's leading us to do over and over again is uh, not to use Jesus but to give ourselves to him and to worship him. And that's really a worthy goal of our teaching, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that's important to remember, you know, uh, people who look at Hebrews and they hear what we've just said about the situation of this audience in the first century and their unique challenge and the temptations they were facing. And people say, well, what does that have to do with me in the 21st century? I mean, I mean, I'm not being tempted to revert back to Old Testament Judaism. Although, by the way, there are some in the professing Christian church who are. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And uh, thats it's interesting. Maybe we can get into this later. There are actually some professing Christians who think Hebrews ought to be taken out of the New Testament canon. It's such a a direct challenge to their desire to live under the Mosaic Covenant. But we can get into that later. But I've told our, our people many times, I say, look the nature of the temptation that they were enduring in the first century isn't the same as what you're experiencing, but you're experiencing temptation to which Hebrews provides the best answer. For example, uh, people today are always being challenged and tempted Uh, and drawn away by our society to supplant Jesus and devotion to him with something they think is going to bring satisfaction to their souls. It's going to bring meaning and value. This world is constantly trying to lure us away from the single-minded, heartfelt devotion to Christ. And regardless of what that may be, The solution is still the same. It's the same for the people in the first century. It's the same for us in the 21st. And that is that the only ultimate lasting satisfaction that you will ever experience comes from knowing Christ and being known by Him, loving Christ and experiencing His love for you. And that is the power, that is the the strength that energizes the human heart to say Mm -hmm. no, as we see in chapter 11, to the fleeting pleasures of sin as Moses himself did.
1: Yeah. I think of the fact that uh, we're such pragmatists and there's a question that rises up again in us which is is Jesus worth it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, is he worth all the commitment and is he worth the challenge that obeying him brings and perhaps increasingly for us more and more Sam the reality of persecution is becoming All the more real, I think. And even in our American and Western culture, as we're seeing people lose their lives in other parts of the world more vividly than ever before for naming the name of Christ, Uh, ultimately... We have to decide, is Jesus worth perhaps losing my life, losing my family? And I think that makes the message of Hebrews very significant to us today.
0: Absolutely. In fact, um, it may well be my favorite verse in all of Hebrews is in chapter 10, verse 34, when he said, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one.
1: Well, I wish we could talk all day about the book of Hebrews, and I bet you do too, because there are such riches here. But let's try to work our way pretty quickly, take a quick tour through the book to offer some essentials of help to people. And the truth is we could get bogged down right here at the very beginning. I mean, we could spend all day talking about these first few verses Mm -hmm. in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 1. How do these first few verses of Hebrews set the stage for us to understand the book?
0: Well, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? That unlike, as I said a moment ago, other New Testament letters, which start out with, Hey, how are y'all doing? Greetings. Uh, Friends say hello. You know, say hello to others. We hope you're doing well. Grace and peace to you. Our author just jumps into the deep end of the pool. And he begins to articulate some of the most profound truths about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, His eternality, the fact that he created all things, he upholds all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. Um, He has made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has inherited a name superior to all of the angelic hosts. And it's just like you get blasted right from the beginning. As if the author is saying, all right, let me cut to the chase. Let me come right to the point, right from the start. This is the person that you need to know and understand. You need to grasp something of the majesty, the beauty, the splendor of who he is and what he has accomplished for you. And it's it's like he grabs us right from the beginning. We say, okay, pleasantries all aside, uh, you know, uh, greetings and, and, and everything else. Uh, simply don't matter right now. I want to. He said, "I want to confront you with the glory, the incomparable supremacy of this person uh, who, that we know to be Jesus Christ." So it does set the stage. You said, "Oh, well, obviously, then this this book is all about him. This book is all about outlining, detailing, explaining the multifaceted ways in which Jesus is." The best, superior, the greatest, supreme in every conceivable respect.
1: We also get the first glimpse of something that's going, we're going to see woven in the book. It's going to keep raising its head throughout the book. And that is just those words, God spoke Mm -hmm. Uh, throughout the book. How do we see that? That sense of God speaking and that we must hear it
0: yeah Jesus is the consummate revelation of god 's character, his will, and his purposes for us as men and women and um, he's he, again we don't want people to misunderstand he's not saying that what God said through the Old Testament prophets and in the and in the wisdom literature and in the historical narratives is somehow deficient or incorrect it's not a contrast between what is false and what is true. It's a contrast between the seed and the flower. The contrast is between what's incomplete and partial as over against what is consummate and complete and fulfilled. And so he's saying, look, you want to hear the voice of God? You want to know something about the character uh, of your heavenly father? Look at his son. He is the express, exact imprint of God's nature. And when he speaks and what he has done and everything that he has accomplished— Uh, That's the consummate revelation of God's will for mankind.
1: This speaking comes up again immediately in chapter two when we get there and it says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard and don't drift away from it. And chapter two focuses so much on the humanness. I mean, already we have spanned that he is, you know, he's greater, higher than uh, the angels and yet he's going to focus here in chapter two on the humanity of Jesus. Yeah. And in fact,
0: um, verse 10 is, is one that has always intrigued me where he says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And again, that doesn't mean that Jesus was um, sinful, or that he was defiled and he needed somehow to be cleansed and be uh, purified. It just seems it means he needed to be equipped through actual experience with suffering that he might serve as a faithful high priest for us.
1: This preacher, this person giving this sermon letter, he is drawing upon the text, and the text he's drawing upon repeatedly comes from the Old Testament. Sp- so speak to us as Teachers, we're going through here, and as we're studying Hebrews, preparing to teach it, he keeps going back to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Help us understand, as teachers, just very practical ways when we're studying, preparing, what do we do with that? How can we rightly understand and then present to those we're teaching why he keeps going back to the Old Testament and how to bring those Old Testament passages in rightly? Yeah,
0: that's an important point. It would appear on several occasions in chapter 2, 3, and 4 in particular that our author is comparing the people to whom he's writing in the first century with the wilderness generation of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They've come out of Egypt in the Exodus. They have witnessed incredible miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, being fed from um, the manna that fell from heaven, Um, They have witnessed incredible things, and yet they come right up to the edge, as it were, of the promised land on the brink of the fulfillment of that promise. And then they start grumbling and griping and complaining, and they are on the verge of shrinking back, of pulling back, because the challenges just strike them as too great. And our author is saying, in a sense, folks, you're very similar to that. You've heard the gospel. You have come out of Old Testament Judaism. You have experienced, in a sense, your own exodus, the consummate exodus out of slavery to sin. And and some of you are on the very brink of laying hold of the fullness of eternal life that is given to us in the Son. And now, just like that wilderness generation, you're being tempted to draw back. And his whole point is over and over and over again, don't draw back press on, lay hold of the fullness of Christ, because he's addressing a a congregation of people uh, very much like our congregations today. We have mixed congregations. I mean, I think of my church. Um, I would love to believe that everybody who sat there on Sunday was born again, but that's a delusion. They're not. The amazing thing is a lot of those who aren't born again think they are they've been raised in church. They like religion. They enjoy the community. They come maybe because the music is really uh, alluring to them. Um, Maybe they just like the sound of my voice. I don't know what it is, but they have not pressed in wholly and fully and laid hold of Christ. And our author is saying, look, um, this is what I'm holding forth to you. Don't fail to hear the voice of God speaking right now, grab it, lay hold of it, press in, close with Christ. Um, Because if you don't and you draw back, if you shrink back at one point is the language that he uses to the destruction of your souls, the judgment that will come upon you is even greater than the judgment that came upon that wilderness generation.
1: And he says at the beginning of chapter four, therefore, while this promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any should seem to have failed to reach it, which is exactly what you're speaking to. And this promise of rest, probably in their minds, they think, well, that promise of rest, that was when we entered into the holy land, uh, when the people of God took possession of the land. But he's saying... That was really just pointing to a greater rest. Yeah,
0: it's the Sabbath theme is is so central to Hebrews, and um, in fact, there are really four. As I read it, there are four stages or expressions of the concept of rest. There obviously the first was when God rested from His creative work on the seventh day, and then the second was um, the rest um, of the the seventh day. Sabbath that God gave uh, as a sign of the covenant with Israel. Actually, I've said there were four, there are actually five stages. The third is that the promised land was designed to be a very tangible symbol of the rest that God had established for his people. Um, And then fourth, there is the rest that we experience when we... um, trust in Christ. We stop striving in our works to try to justify ourselves in God's sight and we rest in the work of Christ. He is quite literally our Sabbath rest. And then finally there will be the the Sabbath rest in the new heavens and the new earth when we enter into the fullness of all the promises and the blessings that God has made. So our author draws on that again very clearly to tell the people who are struggling Um, He says it in chapter 4, verse 11, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He means by that the sort that I just described to you that the children of Israel experienced um, in the Old Covenant.
1: As you say that, it reminds me that the writer of Hebrews, it's like he's got several tools in his bag that he's going to use. You stated earlier, his whole purpose was exhortation. Mm -hmm. He's trying to encourage them. And the way he's going to do that, he's going to use some promise as well as some encouragement and as well as some warning. Oh, a lot
0: of warnings. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. Where do we see that in Hebrews? Yeah. In
0: fact, I would say, and I think this is just for anyone who's reading Hebrews, anybody, especially who's going to be teaching it. I honestly believe that uh, if you don't understand chapter 3, verse 14, you will not understand, you will struggle with, you will not be able to grasp the multiple warnings that we find in this book. Because there's a principle articulated in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For we have come, past tense, to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. His point is, The way you know if somebody has come to share in Christ, the way you know whether somebody has truly trusted Jesus for salvation is if they persevere, if they endure all the way to the end. He doesn't say that you will come to share in Christ if you persevere unto the end, but rather your perseverance, your endurance is the evidence that you have come to know him genuinely in the past. So when you keep that verse in mind, so, for example, when you read chapter 2, when you read the warnings in chapter 6, again in chapter 10, again in chapter 12, um, the fundamental principle is this. Perseverance in faith is the proof of the authenticity of it. And without that principle in your mind, you're going to struggle with the warning passages in Hebrews.
1: Well, let's go to that chapter in hebrews most of us who think we're going to teach through hebrews are terrified of Can it, we can't skip that <laughs> we want to uh, we but when want we are <laughs> want to leapfrog chapter six we do don't we yeah um because we know some people are going to put their hands up and they have wanted to you know have some formulas and some of us grew up in churches where there were pretty strict formulas you know to boil this down to Well, once saved, always saved, right? Is that true or not? And we, perhaps as teachers, have to step back and say, well, let's just look at what the scripture says. Why don't we read those few verses that we're talking about that are so challenging? And that's probably beginning there in chapter 6, maybe verse Mm 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, I imagine you didn't skip this in your preaching through the book of (laughs) Hebrews. So speak to us as teachers both about the fear we have about Mm -hmm. getting this right. And I think even more just the questions we're going to get and are we going to be able to answer them and can we live with maybe not being able to answer them to everyone's satisfaction?
0: Sure. Well, let's begin by, by acknowledging this is a difficult text for
1: everybody. It's not just that I'm not a very good teacher if, if, I, if I struggle with this
0: text. No, everybody struggles with it. I think one of the things that's important uh, to keep in mind, and oftentimes we do not think about this, is how very close people can come to the brink of saving faith Without actually being born again and putting their trust and their confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, the Spirit of God, through what we call common grace, we call it common because it's universal, it's common to everybody, believer and non believer alike. Through common grace, the Spirit of God does some remarkable things in the lives of non Christians. He grants them opportunities and blessings and insights into the Scripture, uh, He brings conviction of sin to their hearts. But none of these actually bring about the new birth.
1: So why is it impossible? That's a challenging word. Yeah,
0: it is. Because um, although this may sound odd to some, there is a, a point beyond which a person can place himself or herself that makes it impossible for them to come to repentance. Not because God isn't capable of converting that person, but because God gives them over to their chosen path. Um, there is a hardness of heart when a person has been exposed and given every opportunity and has seen the light so clearly and they harden their heart to such a degree that they hold Christ up for open contempt that in a sense, God, as it were, removes his hand. We read about this in Romans one talks about God giving them over to the deeper cultivation of their sin. And I think he's talking here about people who have had such incredible opportunity and blessing and they have hardened themselves and God, as it were, gives them over to the to the chosen path that, that, uh, on which they find themselves. What's, but what we need to remember sometimes, you know, we did it here. I mean, you stopped at verse six, mm. but it's interesting when he goes on in verses seven through 11, he speaks in more reassuring terms. He says, in fact, look in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, in the way we have just talked, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So I think he's saying my confidence is that in the vast majority of cases, you really are saved. You do know Christ. Um, and, and I'm assured of that. I'm assured of better things with regard to you. But for those who have experienced these blessings and are on the verge of, of apostatizing and turning away, you need to understand you could very likely be putting yourselves in a position on a pathway, a trajectory, let's say, in which you so harden your heart that it is impossible to renew you back to a repentant life and one that depends on Christ for salvation. I That's so. a warning we need to hear today.
1: And we have to be sure, as teachers, that we maintain the warning posture of the Bible rather than soften it. I think sometimes when we teach, we want to reassure and bring in all these things. And we want to offer the same assurance that the writer of Hebrews offers. And we want to offer the same warning of peril And the same emotion, I think, even that he has about it, about the potential peril of having heard of the word of Christ and reject it.
0: Yeah. And it's important. It's just it's it reveals the pastoral heart of our author. When you go on for a little bit further in chapter six and he comes down in uh, verses 18 and following, he says, look, you, you need to understand it's impossible for God to lie. And you who have fled for refuge in Christ should be encouraged knowing that you have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, which is in fact Jesus himself. So it's as if he's saying, look, if I just scared you uh, and you truly know Christ, you shouldn't be frightened. If you know him, you should be assured. Those of you who think you know him and are pretending and are just practicing religion because it feels psychologically comforting to you. You're the ones that I want to shake. You're the ones that I want to stir. I want to, and if need be, yeah, I want to frighten you just a little bit with the reality of impending judgment. But those who truly know Christ, you need to know that God has confirmed with an oath. It's as if he says, I, God, by God say you're my child and nothing will ever change that.
1: Absolutely. Well, we're getting into this section now where he begins to talk about uh, Jesus as a a high priest. And I think when we're teaching this book, for those of us who teach in a Protestant setting, perhaps one of our first challenges is to give people who grew up in a Protestant setting any sense that they have a need for a priest. I know in in the tradition I grew up in, I mean, just the idea of a priest, that was just, that was just, oh, you don't need that And yet the writer of Hebrews is wanting to convince us, you do need a priest, and Jesus is the priest you need. We all have the same one. (laughs) Why do we need a priest, and what does the author of Hebrews want us to understand about the priest that we need? Yeah, and here's
0: where it really helps to go back into the Old Testament again and look at the experience of Aaron and um, the Levites and the, the high priest within Israel. And the whole point was, is that your sin has created a barrier between you and God. Uh, Your sin has separated you. And, you know, the whole image that we read over and over and over again, especially in chapters 9 and 10, where it talks about, look, on one day of the year, one man only could go into the Holy of Holies bearing blood for the sake of the people. And the whole idea was to emphasize This radical division, this separation, this alienation, if you will, that that our sin has created between us and God. And so all through the Old Covenant, the people said, we have no hope if that priest, that one individual from that one tribe, that one family, uh, brings blood uh, into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, yes, Your sin has created a barrier, a separation. But now we have a high priest who isn't replaced, who doesn't die, who isn't just as sinful as you and has to make atonement for his own transgressions. It's the person of Jesus. You don't need another human to represent you before God. Christ has done that for you. He has opened a a pathway up. He is a pioneer to the throne of grace on your behalf. And so um, th- the point is, you don't need to look to another man or another woman or any religious institution to accomplish for you what Aaron and the Old Testament high priests did. Jesus has done that once and finally and forever on your behalf. And he stands at the right hand of God to represent you and to intercede on your behalf.
1: As we move into chapters 9 and 10, He's, he's moving, as we talked earlier, better, better, better. So he's a nope. better priest. Uh, he's, he will represent us before the throne of God in a, in a perfect way beyond what human priests with their own sin could do. He brings a better covenant. And there he goes back to uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, mm-hmm. which I just love when Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, says mm-hmm. the Lord. And all these people would have grown up opening up the scroll of Jeremiah. And now this writer of the Hebrews saying, this day is here. Mm -hmm. He's the one who brought this better covenant. And then we move into chapters 9 and 10, and his focus is on the uh, temple cult worship of offering sacrifice. Now, I think, once again, this is a little bit hard for us to relate to because, you know, like... Like for me, I you know I buy boneless, skinless chicken breasts. Okay, at the store. I don't want to deal with a, a, a whole chicken carcass, right. let alone what these people had grown up doing. The whole of their um, worship life had been about taking this animal mm-hmm. to the temple and taking part in seeing its its throat slit and its blood spread and so it's probably hard for us to grasp that they now have to understand no Jesus is the sacrifice that all exactly. of this Old Testament sacrifice was pointing to all along
0: yeah it, it you know we, we we do have a hard time envisioning their experience and that is that year after year after year after monotonous year they had to keep coming back offering, sacrifices, which our author says could never take away our consciousness of sins and the sense of guilt and of shame. And, you know, this whole elaborate system talked about in chapters nine and 10, um, all the articles in the tabernacle, the various pieces of furniture, uh, the, the, the various ritual actions of the priest, all of which was designed to hammer home in a very powerful way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it was just constantly in their face. It had to be. That had to be incredibly disconcerting. Um, every time that the sacrifice was offered, he said, oh, "You go, oh, wow, well, wow, glad that's done. My sins are forgiven for this year." And then you say, "Yeah, but he's going to come back next year on the Day of Atonement. He's going to have to go through the whole thing all over again." And our author says, people, listen to me, Christ has offered a single sacrifice once for all, all consciousness of sin, all guilt, all shame forever has been. Um, wiped clean, and you can stand confident in the presence of God, not having to look over your shoulder, waiting for another high priest who just took over for the one who died to come back and offer for your sins that you just committed the, in the previous year. And he's saying, Why would you want to revert back to that kind of enslavement, that kind of psychological burden, that emotional weight? Look to Christ, whose perfection, whose satisfaction, whose blood sacrifice has accomplished what those Old Testament rituals never could.
1: You mentioned earlier, and so we'll go there, that uh, there are many believers today, and perhaps will be some in the group that we are teaching when we teach through the book of Hebrews, that they have had teaching that points toward a future in which sacrifice is going to be reinstated, mm-hmm. and this temple, which he's, which the writer of Hebrews says in chapter nine, verse twenty-three, that was it was really just a copy of heavenly things. Mm-hmm. Um, many people look forward to a temple actually being rebuilt and sacrifices being offered again. I imagine there are many situations you're in where you're teaching this book. And those kind of people are there, and they're pushing and challenging. Give us some wisdom about dealing wisely, lovingly, sure, with people who are that we are teaching who have those very strong views. Well,
0: let's let's understand one thing. Um, I want to understand why people think that way. And honestly, they're doing it because they want to be faithful to Scripture. Yes, absolutely. They 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 want to believe what the Word of God says. Um, but the failure is not grasping the the what we call the progress of redemption, the progressive nature of God's unfolding purpose. Uh, the temple was a glorious reality that God made for His people during the time of the old covenant. First, the tabernacle that was a portable temple, and uh, then the temple itself, you know, of Solomon, and then rebuilt uh, under Herod. Um, but what we need to understand is the the glorious truth of John 1.14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the temple. He is the place where atonement for sin is made. He is the place where people go to hear the voice of God. He is the place where people find uh, everything that the Old Covenant temple uh, provided in part. He is the consummate fulfillment of that's why, for example, we read. Uh, you read the one passage in, in nine twenty three, but in ten one, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the the Old Testament law was good. It was righteous. It was holy. It was instructive, but it was a shadow. It was a, it was a prefiguring of all that we now have in Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus accomplishes what the temple was designed to accomplish. You know, go back to a passage like uh, Mark 2 when Jesus sees the paralytic and pronounces his sins forgiven. And the, you know, the religious leaders go ballistic. They said, "Well, there's this blasphemy because they realize what Jesus was saying. Jesus is saying you don't need to go to the temple to get your sins forgiven. You just need to come to me. I accomplish what the temple was designed to achieve in God's purposes." So it, it's, it's sort of as if you're driving down a street and you notice a, a building under construction, under construction and you see this scaffolding all around and you're intrigued by the intricacy and the architectural design and it kind of presents in your mind a picture of what is eventually coming. But then six months later, you drive by and there's the building and you say, God, I really missed the scaffolding. Uh, I, I I just, I'd like to go back and just look at the, you know, the, 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 the beams that were put in place. And it's, it's, that's what people are doing. They're saying, I want to go back to the scaffolding when God says, no, the building is here. The substance is here. The reality is now given to you and it's in Christ and all that I am for you in and through him. So there are some people who, because they are so captivated by the, all of the beauty and the intricacies and the complexities of old Testament Levitical mosaic life. Think that somehow there's a virtue in reverting back to that or in projecting that into the future. Oh, it's going to come back again. And I would just say to people, look, that is the worst form of redemptive regression, not progression. We don't want to go back to the old Testament way of shadows and types and figures and symbols. When we have the substance, we have everything to which they were pointing forward. So I would want to gently just draw people to the beauty of Jesus. That's the way that you convince them of the error of thinking uh, that, that we've just been talking about.
1: As we come to Hebrews chapter 11, this is a passage that's certainly taught often. I'm not sure it's often taught well or rightly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways teachers go in the ditch when well, they approach Hebrews chapter 11?
0: Sure. Well, the first way is by teaching it uh, in isolation from the rest of the book. Yes. Uh, my guess is, and there are probably some listening to us who said, oops, I've done that. I said, hey, folks, let's just do a series of Bible studies on Hebrews 11. I'm not saying that that's really wrong, but you need to understand that Hebrews 11 serves a very explicit pastoral function in this book. Um, there are, Hebrews 11 is surrounded on either side by what I call these, these bookends. In chapter 10 and in verse 36, He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So he said, you're about, you're running out of breath spiritually. You need to endure. And then in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, he says, now run with endurance the race that is set before you. So here we have on either side of chapter 11, this appeal to endure, to persevere, to, to hang in there. Chapter 11 is designed to fuel that race. It says, all right, let me give you some examples of people who endured. Let me show you how faith sustained these men and women through some of the worst, the most horrific uh, circumstances imaginable. So chapter 11 is there to encourage us to endure. And as you know, it provides countless examples of men and women of faith. Um, It's important also to remember they were also men and women of failure.
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, if you work through this list, there's some incredible failure. So oh. endurance can't equal good behavior or all perfection. the time. Or perfection, right.
0: certainly. It, yeah, let's think for a moment. I mean, Noah, right after the flood, got stone cold drunk. Abraham twice lied about who Sarah was to save his skin. Jacob was the deceiver who stole his older brother's birthright. Um uh, Moses committed murder. David committed adultery and murder. Samson's, uh, you know, fling with Delilah is well known. These were all people who had struggles, who fell, but they persevered. They did not abandon the faith. It was by faith that they were uh, the instruments of God accomplishing incredible things. So I, I say to people, I say, look, faith is as you see it in these old Testament, uh, uh saints is not a, a, a life of pristine purity. It's clinging to God and believing that he is better and worth and more worthy. Even when you fail, even in the face of the most horrific temptation and hardships, and especially when you come to the end of chapter 11, well,
1: that's what <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, I, I am sad that it seems like this is not a part of Hebrews 11 that gets taught because right. it certainly doesn't fit in with the health and wealth exactly. gospel or any kind of sense that you're know that you going to be able to use Jesus to make the life that you want. Your definition of faith seems to hit the mark because it works for all the different people listed in this chapter. And even the people, when we come to the end, uh, people – who were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Uh, They were stoned. They were sawn in two.
0: Killed with the sword. You know, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Here is, uh, he says uh, in verse 34, they escaped the edge of the sword through faith. But then you come down, To verse 37 they're killed with the edge of the sword through faith we say wait a minute how is it that people who have the same quality and kind of robust faith in god some escape the edge of the sword others die by the edge of the sword Some live in palaces and experience great wealth and prosperity, while others live in caves, destitute and penniless. Some are uh, uh, clothed with robes of purple and exquisite uh, garments. Others go about in the the skin of of goats and sheep. And what we need to understand is it's not that one group had faith and the other didn't. Uh, That's what the health and wealth gospel would tell you. Oh, these people from verses 35 to 38... They're the ones that didn't have faith. Well, the problem is the text says precisely the opposite. Uh, We're told down in verse 39, all these though commended through their faith. Uh, In fact, it's almost as if the author is anticipating the health and wealth gospel of the 21st century because he inserts this remarkable parenthetical statement right in the middle of talking about these people who were suffering horrific Uh, torture, imprisonment, mockery. And he says, these are people of whom the world is not worthy. He said, you think these are people who aren't fit for society? Let me tell you, society doesn't deserve to have them in their midst. Uh, And that just turns your value system inside out right there. And so we see that he's saying to us, there's nothing wrong with these material blessings. Enjoy the benefits and the prosperity God has given you but also realize that you can have a same kind of robust faith in Christ and endure horrible experiences. It's, it reminds me of the, uh, the child's book, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, uh, no good, very bad day. Well, these were some people who were experiencing a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life. And yet they were enduring through faith. Um, so it's not to say that material blessings are, are bad. It's simply saying don't draw a cause and effect correlation between your faith and your material prosperity because the same people of faith oftentimes are led through deprivation. Other people of faith are led through great success, fame, and power. Um, And and we need to understand that our faith does not uh, decide ultimately whether we're going to prosper or whether we're going to suffer. Faith is clinging to Christ regardless of what we endure and saying he's better. He's better than anything this life could give me. And if I lose everything in this life, he's better than everything I just forfeited.
1: I think, Sam, when we come to the end of chapter 11, these last couple verses, I remember when I years ago was teaching through the book of Hebrews uh, and only really beginning to understand the sweep of redemptive history wrangling with these last few verses in chapter 11 were very significant to me personally to try to figure out what this these mean when it concludes and all these though commended for their faith did not receive what was promised since god had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect um it you know being someone who grew up being taught the Old Testament in many ways of these people being examples uh, of faith, but to read that they didn't get what was promised. Mm -hmm. What was promised that they didn't get?
0: Well, I think we have to go back a little bit uh, earlier in chapter 11 um, to Abraham, where it says that Abraham, when he left Ur of the Chaldees, and they settled in a land, um, the land of promise that, was like a sojourning in a foreign country. They had no settled existence there. They um, they lived in tents. And the point I think is is that they understood that the land uh, to which they had been led was in fact a a kind of a preparatory foreshadowing of the new earth. Because it says that Abraham was looking for a city that has foundations. And so I think that what we are being told is is that. Although they enjoyed their time there, they never looked at it as their final home. But it says that they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. And I think he's talking about the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21. You know, people have this idea that we're going to, you know, fly around on the clouds in some ethereal uh, disembodied state for eternity. We're not. We're going to live in physical glorified bodies on a physical glorified earth and the fulfillment of God's dwelling with us on that new earth that you read about in the opening verses of Revelation 21 I think is the promise that is referred to here that they didn't enter into that but rather it was God's design that together with the people of the new covenant age we would as God's elect eventually receive the fullness of that promise when Christ returns
1: When well, we come to chapter 12 now and feels a little bit like a turn of the corner Now, once again, we could probably spend all day Mm -hmm. on, on just those verses, but help us understand when we're teaching through the book of Hebrews, what the significance of the beginning of this chapter is.
0: Well, again, I think the key is that word endurance. Um, he realizes that these people to whom he's writing are worn out. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're breathless and they're about ready to quit. They're about ready to take the easy way out. Just deny Jesus just withdraw your commitment just recant your faith Um, and he's saying no now that you see the example set by these who bore witness to the to the worthiness of God uh, during the time of the old covenant take that as an incentive set your eyes on Christ don't look to the left or to the right and lay aside everything that would make it difficult for you to run by the way this is a it's a powerful incentive. Sometimes people, in fact, a lot of the times, they'll come and say about some something that they want to do, well, is it okay for me to do that? Is it okay for me to go there? Can I see this? Can I taste that? And and their their way of justifying is to say, well, what harm is there?
1: There's nothing wrong with yeah. it.
0: What's wrong with this? Instead of asking, will it help me run? Will it help me run? And I think if we'll ask that question, We'll look at all of the various things in life that challenge uh, for our time and our energy uh, and our focus in an entirely different way. So he's challenging these people. All right. You're in the final lap. Run the race with endurance. Don't give up. Don't let the fact that you're being persecuted uh, discourage you. Realize that oftentimes, as he goes on and says in chapter 12, this is the discipline of God. He said don't despise god's discipline i mean if if god didn't discipline you it might be because you're not a legitimate child Um, and that strikes people as odd but how do we know the father really loves us we know it because he refuses to allow us to stay in the condition in which we uh, are currently found you know people say god loves us unconditionally well that's true but he loves us so much that he refuses to leave us in the condition in which he finds us. He changes us. He sanctifies and transforms us. And so he's saying, you know, embrace the hardship that you're facing. Don't abandon Christ. Look at it as the loving hand of your heavenly father, uh, bringing about the transformation of your character.
1: Well, we're coming to the end of the book of Hebrews. And once again, we have a very powerful old Testament image that unless we have that firmly in mind, we can't really understand the second part of chapter 12 and into verse 13. And that is we need this picture of what happened way back in Exodus at Mount Sinai. What is? What is? Why do we need to understand that picture for this section?
0: Well, once again, I think our author is addressing these people who want to revert back to the former ways under the Mosaic covenant and under the Mosaic law. And so he's using two mountains as representative of two systems. And he said, he's saying here, let me remind you of what it was like under the Mosaic code. It was terrifying. It was a a mountain where people trembled with fear. We read in in verse 21, the sight was so terrifying. Um, And the people were so overwhelmed that they beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Verse 19. But he says, listen, in the new covenant under Christ, which is the fulfillment, the, 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 the substance, the antitype, if you will, of all that, that old, that Mount Sinai system represented has come in Christ. And it's not fear. It's joy and celebration. You come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You're every time you gather in corporate worship, you're joining with the angels surrounding the throne, celebrating Christ. And those who have already gone before you, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, which I think he's talking about the intermediate state. Those who have died in faith in Christ are now present with him. And um, why would you want, again, to to revert back to a system of that doesn't take away sin, that only intensifies your fear when, in fact, you have been brought near to God through the blood of Christ that has accomplished what the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices never could?
1: Jesus is so much better. What a privilege it is for us as teachers and how thrilling it is. We're not just... We're not selling Tupperware or our water system. We have to present before our people this superior Savior. What a privilege to uh, get to stand up or sit down or however it is or sit at our computer as we teach and interact with people and present the Jesus that we find in the book of Hebrews. What a privilege. As we draw to a close, Sam, would you Talk to us a little bit about resources. Sure. We're, we're getting ready to teach through the book of Hebrews. Um, what are some resources on the book of Hebrews that you have found helpful that you would recommend to others?
0: You know, one of the things that, um, that I think people uh, who study the Bible tend to—it's uh, a mistake, I think, that they make—is in thinking that the most recent is necessarily the better or the best— Uh, I'm so grateful for all the material that's coming out currently, but sometimes we need to go back to the old stalwarts of the faith, those who've written, and I I say, you know, some that are only 30 or 40 or 50 years old. Um, For example, the first book that I read on Hebrews that helped me immensely was F.F. Bruce. You know, F.F. Bruce, his commentary is just so fascinating foundational and fundamental and solid. It's not necessarily the most scintillating read, but it is really, really helpful. I was helped early on by the commentary by Philip Edgecombe Hughes. Uh, It's a massive commentary, but he is so good at going back into the Old Testament and um, unpacking for us the system of religion in which Old Testament Israel lived. More recently, Probably the best commentary, and again, this one's a little more technical, is the one by Peter O'Brien in the Pillar Commentary Series. Um, Even if you don't read uh, Greek, you can still profit from O'Brien's commentary, but it is really substantive. Uh, I think probably the best commentary for the English reader is the one by George Guthrie in the NIV Application Commentary. He is so good at tracing the argument of Hebrews so very helpful in um, providing application and relevance uh, in, in 21st century life. And it's very tremendous illustrations to bring the message of Hebrews uh, to us. So I would, I think for those who might, uh, who, who don't want to be overwhelmed by technical commentaries would find George Guthrie to be extremely helpful. And then Also, it hasn't even been released yet, although I saw an advanced copy. Tom Schreiner's commentary on Hebrews is extremely helpful as well.
1: Are there any series of teaching or audio uh, sermons on Hebrews that you've listened to that you would recommend that we might want to listen through?
0: The only one that I have listened to that I would highly recommend is the series by John Piper. Uh, You can go to the Desiring God Uh, website. And, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of John's sermons, but I think his series on Hebrews may be the best thing he ever did.
1: And the beautiful thing about the Desiring God website is you can listen, but you could also read the text of all of those sermons. Those helped me so much when I was Hmm. teaching through. Sam, as we draw to a close, I want you to turn and speak to those who are listening. They're preparing to teach through the book of Hebrews, which can be a very intimidating book. Yes, it can and we can want to run away from it, and yet there is so much richness here to understand. Would you just speak to us as teachers directly, giving us a word of encouragement or direction as we prepare to teach?
0: Well, the first thing I would say is don't be intimidated by it. Don't think that you have to know Greek in order to be able to effectively teach it. It's wonderful if you do, but um, the resources that are available now Uh, that help unpack the original text for those who don't understand it are 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 just everywhere they're they're numberless it seems so don't be afraid of teaching hebrews don't avoid the difficult texts you know there's a temptation on the part of those who read it and teach it to say well maybe we'll kind of leapfrog over this passage or or that one Um, accept the challenge and And spend a lot of time in prayer and um, asking the hard questions of of a passage of Scripture. So don't be afraid of that. And then more than anything else, um, realize that the people that you're going to be speaking to and teaching are in many respects facing the same kind of temptation, the same kinds of pressures that the people in the first century did. Now, when I say the same kind, I don't mean, you know, that... uh, that necessarily their, their property's being confiscated. I don't mean that they're being tempted to revert to Old Testament Judaism. What they're being tempted to do is to replace Jesus with something else, something artificial. Whether it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the allure of a secret affair or it's the power that comes from promotion at work that can only be obtained through the sacrifice of your purity or the sacrifice of truth or it's the acclaim that you so desperately desire to hear from your colleagues, Um, or it's just the benefits of Western society. We are constantly being um, um, tempted by what fundamentally is idolatry, taking something that's good and making it the best. And if you keep the focus on Jesus, if you keep the focus on the centrality of Christ and all that God is for us in him, um, I think you'll find Hebrews um, not only easier to read and understand, but far more beneficial from a practical point of view.
1: Thank you so much, Sam. My pleasure. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracks, the publisher of numerous books written by our guest today, Sam Storms, including Kept for Jesus, What the New Testament Really Teaches About Assurance of Salvation and Eternal Security, which I'm sure covers some of these Hebrews passages, as well as Tough Topics, Biblical Answers to 25 Challenging Questions. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.